I think people are addicted to pandemic politics right now. It's become such an instinct for people to say, oh, new revelation in the pandemic, no matter what it means, let me try to use it to my political advantage. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. Corey, welcome back. How was your Thanksgiving break? It was great. I did a lot of driving back and <laughs> forth between uh, Alabama and New York, so that was fun. Um, what about a lot of your- traffic? Uh, yeah, some days, but not as not really bad, not terrible. And Virginia, for some reason, there was a lot of traffic there. You know, something about Virginia drivers. But uh, everything else was was pretty. Family good. Family was good. Family was great. Family was great. Had a great time. Um, what about you? I know you went down to Costa Rica. Costa Rica went surfing. Yeah, uh, I was basically avoiding my family, <laughs> uh, which I did successfully, and the waves were perfect. So I nice. can't complain. I didn't read any news all week, and so. It's been uh, like drinking from a fire hose, just getting caught up in everything. And speaking of which, what are we going to touch on today? Well, we got a lot of interesting stories we're going to cover. A lot of things have changed since we came back from our break today. We are going to discuss Ahmaud Aubrey and the Rittenhouse case. Both verdicts were decided during our Thanksgiving break. Chris Christie is making the rounds to reclaim the Republican Party post-Trump, but is it possible? My guess is no. And the Cuomo brothers fall from grace. New revelations about how Chris Cuomo helped his disgraced brother, the former governor of New York. And later, we will talk about the government practice that prevents cities and towns from making their own laws and how the story of the abused Turpin children's interaction with social programs is a reflection of government's ineptitude. But first things first, everybody is talking about this new variant, Omicron. We don't know much about it. Reminds me of Omicron Persei 8, which is a planet on Futurama. People of Earth, I am Lur of the planet Omicron Persei 8. Is this thing on? But what, what do we know? But what, what do we know, if anything, about this variant? So big three questions are, does this new variant spread faster? Mm-hmm. Is it more deadly? And does it circumvent immunity either from the vaccines or from natural immunity? Mm-hmm. And we don't know the answer to any to of any those of questions, right? But that has not stopped people from uh, fitting this super ambiguous situation into their political narratives. Uh, we had the governor of Texas, for example, mm-hmm. who tweeted the following. He said, Biden banned travel from South Africa because of the new COVID variant. Immigrants have recently been apprehended crossing our border illegally from South Africa. Biden is doing nothing to stop immigrants from South Africa entering illegally pure politics and hypocrisy. So essentially, you know, and he's not alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people jumping at this new revelation that once again, we don't know a ton about mm-hmm. um, to fit it into their politics. And there was just a lot confusing about this tweet. For example, yeah. he says that Biden is doing nothing to stop immigrants from South Africa. But right before that, he says that people have been apprehended. So I would imagine, yeah, I don't know who's doing it, apprehending if it's not Biden, if, you know? If they've been apprehended, isn't that stopping them from entering illegally? And like, it's weird the way he worded it because like South Africa is not near our border. So does he like know geography? Like, I don't, I mean, there has been some illegal immigrants that were, tr- that were, from South Africa trying to enter illegally, but it seems like they were stopped. So yeah, and to put this in perspective, I looked at this, there's data from 2007 to 2020 and 0.0009% of people apprehended at the border come from South Africa. So that's, I think something like 63 people between (laughs) 2007 and 2020, which is not a lot of people. Not a lot at all. It's like so few that when the government reports this, they don't even report the data Mm -hmm. often on South Africa. You have Mm -hmm. to go and find it. So. It's not a huge thing, but obviously I think people are addicted to pandemic politics right yeah. now and they cannot get off of it. It is an opiate for our politics where people, and, and 
it's just, I think it's become such an instinct for people to say, oh, new revelation in the pandemic, no matter what it means, let me try to use it to my political advantage. Mm -hmm. And I'm just exhausted by it. I'm done with it. I think most Americans are done with it. And I think that there's this sort of hunting for anecdotes that people have when it comes to the pandemic, which is instead of saying, where do I live? What are Mm -hmm. the rules here? Mm -hmm. Like for instance, in New York, I look at the federal government. Biden has said no new lockdowns. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He says it's not for a cause for uh, alarm yeah. or, or it, panic. Yeah, cause for concern, uh, not a cause for panic. Not a cause for panic. And then in the state, they declared a state of emergency really to get supplies, but mm-hmm. have not indicated in any way that there are going to be new lockdowns. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm like, well, like that's my local situation, but I think that's not what everybody does. I think people go hunting and packing around the country for other places that they don't live in to say, oh, this is this outrageous thing that happened in yeah. Portland or whatever. Yeah. Whereas my advice to people is just look at your local situation, right? Yeah. And say like, is it good or bad? And if it, if it could be better, contact your local elected official. Yeah, and people go beyond just another city in America. A lot of people say, well, look what's going on in Austria where you can't leave your house if you're right. not vaccinated or look what, what's happening in Australia. And that it's like, whole thing about Australia, yeah. That, yeah, it's like a whole different country, you know? Yeah. Like their politics are different and every different area is going to do different things to try to maintain this thing. And I think whenever a new variant comes along, we saw this with Delta, it's like the biggest question then becomes about the vaccines, right? You then get people saying, well, if I got a breakthrough case and I was vaccinated, why get vaccinated? But the overwhelming data shows us that the vaccinations do protect us from actually dying from COVID-19. You can still possibly get it, but I think it was something like 97% here in New York City since the vaccine came out in January of 2021, 97% of people who died from COVID-19 were unvaccinated. Like 97% is a huge, huge, overwhelming majority. And Governor Abbott's own Department of Health says that you're 20 times more likely to die from COVID Mm -hmm. if you're unvaccinated than if you're vaccinated. And so uh, obviously that's the solution, but one thing I think this shows us is, you know, this originated we don't know where it originated, but it was originally discovered in South, South Africa, Africa earlier this month. Mm-hmm. It's now spread to a bunch of other countries. And I think the lesson here is, you know, we have something like 60% of Americans vaccinated right mm-hmm. now. There's so much of our energy goes into the battle over the vaccination politics within our borders. But I think mm-hmm. this is a reminder that the fact that there are plenty of places around the globe where then fewer than 10% of people are vaccinated and yes. they don't have access to vaccines and we hold the keys here mm-hmm. in many ways means that maybe we should be putting way more energy into that debate because we're a global society for better or worse yeah. and yeah. in Africa or wherever this thing mutated then that's a problem for everybody. Like it's a hum- human crisis for, because we care about people no matter where they are, but also is a, even for being purely selfish, it's gonna be more likely to spread everywhere, including here. Well, that's a great point. I mean, the virus can only mutate or can mutate easier when you're not vaccinated. You know, when you're unvaccinated, people spread the virus more and that's how the virus mutates. So yeah, that's every why- every instance of spread is a new opportunity for mutation. That's basically how this yeah. works. Now, I am exhausted by trying to convince people in this country to mm-hmm. get vaccinated, mm-hmm. but I think what this should really make us urgent about is making it available to people who want it mm-hmm. around the world, which mm-hmm. is there are plenty of those people. And if we can get it into more of their hands, then we can uh, prevent more further uh, mutations of this virus. And I think that's the key here. Yeah, well, hopefully Omicron per se doesn't become a big virus here in America, <laughs> but we'll just have to wait and see. So um, speaking of viruses, let's talk a little bit about the media. Ahmad Aubrey, the case in Georgia, and the Rittenhouse case, both of these cases were decided while we were on break. And there's this sense that both of them represent our legal justice system or sort of kind of the 
the greatness of our legal justice system. A lot of people uh, in Republican circles and conservative circles are saying the fact that the killers of Ahmaud Arbery were found guilty by a mostly white jury in Georgia is an example of our, our, our legal justice system working. And they're also making that same claim about Rittenhouse, that like these were both fair assessments and fair judgments. But at the same time, is that really the case, considering the fact that the Ahmaud Arbery case was a case that got very little attention um, we didn't really focus on it at all in our, in our media. You know, neither side really focused on it. And not to mention the Aubrey case, it didn't even it would have not even went to trial had the original D.A. who had the case had her way because she didn't even want to prosecute it. Yeah, I think the the idea that justice was done in the Arbery case to me, I think, is is too reductionist. Mm -hmm. I think that the fact that this this took three different DAs. It took two months in the video to come out mm -hmm. for charges to even be brought. And that the the district attorney um, who was holding this case for a while was indicted on obstruction of justice charges yeah. for not bringing the, the charges in the first place means that there actually, if this wasn't such a high profile case, if this video didn't come out, justice would not have been done. Never mind the fact that we have a dead person who is innocent. Yeah. And that in and of itself is an injustice that can't be undone by this trial. Mm -hmm. And so to me, what, you know, we we talked about the Rittenhouse case multiple times. Before the trial, we predicted it would be a not guilty verdict. And then uh and before the verdict came out, we double we reiterated that, mm -hmm. saying that we thought it was going to be a not guilty verdict. And we felt like that was an important service for our audience who was getting a lot of spin from the media about this case. And if you just watched a lot of conventional sources, you wouldn't have gotten the sense that this was a very likely not guilty verdict. And so in that sense, we predicted that, but that doesn't mean that the debate about these incidents ends with the verdicts. And I think that's what, that's what I think, like you're talking about the right wing media, for example, they were right to be outraged at some of the coverage of Rittenhouse, mm -hmm. but I think they their lack of focus on Arbery from the beginning of that trial and all the problems in that trial, including mm -hmm. the obstruction of justice, the fact that it took a video to come out, the fact that it passed through three different DAs, the fact that the jury was mostly white. I want to see more outrage from them in real time as mm -hmm. that case was going through as they gave to the uh, the Rittenhouse case. Absolutely. Well, the reason why we here at The Lost Debate was able to correctly predict the outcome of the Rittenhouse case was because we didn't look at it through the lens of this ideological culture war that so much of the media seems to be obsessed with. I mean, here we fixate on facts. And being able to do that allowed us to be able to look through all the bullshit and say, this is probably how this is going to end up. As far as the Aubrey case is concerned, I just think that, like you said, there was no real outrage from the right about all of the, you know, the mischaracterizations of justice that was going on with this particular case because it just didn't really fit their narrative. But you mean the same argument is being made about, you know, Ben Shapiro was saying things like uh, the media coverage has been disgusting from beginning to end. It mirrored an original narrative, which is that Kyle Rittenhouse must have been some sort of white supremacist Trump supporter. This is in the middle of the riots in 2020 when we were learning that America was apparently broken down into two groups, people who wanted racial justice and people who supported Trump, and you're on one side or the other. The reason why the left fixated so much on Rittenhouse was because they needed to try to convince people that this, you know, fits their narrative when it really didn't, and that they didn't, you know, talk as much about Aubrey, because the left didn't talk much about the Aubrey case either. That's important to point out. And the reason they didn't was because it was a kind of an open and shut, okay, everybody can agree with this, so we need to argue about something. And right. I mean, I think that's somewhat of a valid point, although I think Shapiro kind of gets it a little muddled there. But, but to be clear, 
clear, though, the left media did focus more on Arbery than the right media. That is a fact. Yeah. And, it, you know, I, I hear justice for Ahmaud Arbery. I'm not mm -hmm. hearing that from Ben Shapiro months ago, no, right? No. Or or, or, or really anybody from yeah. the right. And my point to Shapiro is, you know, you're a conservative. It's the party of personal responsibility. Focus on yourself. What kind of, like, look at your own coverage to say what could you have done better? Because you can always do better. For example, for us, we got one fact wrong in our first report on the Rittenhouse case mm -hmm. that we corrected, yeah. which was that he crossed state lines with the gun. Yeah. Ben Shapiro should look back and say, all right, is there something about my worldview that made it so that I wasn't outraged in mm -hmm. any way in proportion to the Arbery case and how that was evolving than I was in Rittenhouse? And you had all these right-wing sources where they're live streaming pieces of the verdict or um, different uh, elements of that trial, the Rittenhouse trial, and they're gleefully at the point where there was a cross-examination of the sole surviving victim. There was like you know celebrations when yeah. he admitted something mm -hmm. that was uh, damning just a little bit of that attention on the Arbery case would tell me that we're we're operating on the level and that we're actually asking, where is justice going to be done for anybody, no matter what their race, no matter what their situation, no matter whether it fits my political narrative or not? That's what I want in these criminal justice, these criminal justice stories that are making our way through our media. But it just goes back to the culture war, man. Like the culture war is so thick right now and we're just so obsessed with trying to make our points in the culture war. Just to, to critique the left a little bit, when it came to Rittenhouse, there was all this talk about him being a white supremacist. You know, that was like the talk the entire time. Oh, Rittenhouse is a white supremacist. The reason he was able to get uh, a not guilty verdict was because of white supremacy. I mean, first of all, his victims were white. So that's kind of an odd, you know, sort of kind of statement to make about, you know, a white supremacist who killed other white people. But also, too, this idea that an African-American would not have been able to get off on self-defense. I mean, there are some very valid examples. I mean, for instance, there's a rapper, The Baby, who Dave Chappelle talked about this. He killed another man and is walking around free because it was a self-defense case. There's another example, a rapper uh, by the name of Gucci Mane famously killed someone in self-defense and, and it never even went to trial because it was so obviously self-defense. So there's, so there's this idea on the left that it's just impossible for a black person to get a fair trial or any type of fairness in our legal justice system. And that's not necessarily true, even though, of course, there is a lot of problems with race in our legal justice system. It's just there's this extreme nature in which we look at all of these cases. And you want to talk about extreme. Look at this media tour that Rittenhouse is going on. I mean, this is insane. I mean, they are, they are making this kid look like he's some war hero or right. something simply for defending himself in a situation he put himself in. Right. I thought David French in The Atlantic, you know, kind of conservative writer and was basically saying just because uh, he says, even if you think this this verdict was correct, doesn't mean that Rittenhouse is a hero. And I think that's that's like the weird nature, this sort of funhouse mirror nature of our politics is that nothing can be measured anymore. It can't be like, no. hey, you know, I'm I'm a right wing commentator, and I think that you know th that Rittenhouse was not guilty, and now the case is over. And now, as a society, let's let's look at this kid and make sure he gets the support he needs to to maybe not put him in self in situations like this anymore. Instead, they have to go all the way from, hey, this kid's not guilty, to let's celebrate yeah. him and give him internships yeah. on the Hill and what all that. What is that? But I also, to come back to something you said before, which is you know whether Rittenhouse is a, a white supremacist or not, I don't know, yeah. right? I There's tons of evidence out there that could persuade me. That there's some evidence uh, to we, it, yeah. we focused, though, on this uh, show on the evidence that was put before the jury. Exactly. And there was nothing before that jury, in my opinion, that gave them reason to believe that white supremacy, if he is a white supremacist, is what drove him to commit those crimes, mm -hmm. which is the question that was in front of that jury. Now, as the right makes him a hero and a public figure, 
the question of things like, is he a white supremacist? Was he trying to communicate with Trump? Other things that didn't make in front of that jury, like other videos he was putting out, talking about whether he wanted to use guns or not. These things now become relevant in the debate in the public square. Yeah. And so my point to the right is, you could talk about all the things that were that were excluded from that jury and all the procedure and say this was the right verdict or not. There's a new verdict that's going to be given to Rittenhouse. And if I were the right, I'd be careful because I'm not sure they're totally... Um, they've wrapped their head around who this kid is. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure Rittenhouse knows who he is right no, now. No, he's a kid. Yeah. He's very young. And so they need to be careful about making this kid a hero because it, this could turn out to be really inconvenient for them down the line. As far as the mainstream right wing, I've tried so hard to try to give them the benefit of the doubt. And it's just difficult for me when I see four or five different people in Congress, Republicans in Congress, trying to give Kyle Rittenhouse internships in their office. And then, you know, you got a guy like Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, who is trying to sound the alarm. He's one of the only people on the right, other than like Liz Cheney, who's trying to sound the alarm and say, look, you know, we are supposed to be the party of conservative values and we're getting away from that by fixating on all this culture war nonsense, fixating on whether or not the election was rigged and, and pushing lies about 2020 and things like that. And, you know, he's got this book out in which he's trying to, you know, give that warning to the Republicans and they're kind of just like, you know, deaf in both Is ears. that what he's trying to do or is he trying to make some money on that book? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I mean, there's that. There's that. And he still has to answer for Bridgegate too, you know. But I mean, Chris Christie has no chance of being a new leader in, in the Republican Party. But is he right for the wrong reasons? I think this is a perfect right for the wrong reason situation. I think that the message is correct in my mm -hmm. opinion, mm -hmm. which is my hope for the Republican Party is that they become a fiscally conservative party for limited government and strong, you know, um, you know, conserving tradition in society and fighting back against change, because I think that's the role of the conservatives, right? That is not the party that exists today, by and large. And if some of the things he's saying, mm -hmm. like being more consistent, protecting our democracy, forgetting the past and looking to the future. These are all things that I would hope that the Republicans would do. The problem is the messenger is so flawed. Yeah. And that the only reason why we're even talking about him is because the media takes him more seriously than any of the voters do. This yeah. is not a guy who has any future within the Republican Party. And he's trying to sell some books. And I don't think he's very successful at that so far, despite this big media tour that he's on. Yeah. I mean, I think he makes some good points, but I mean, there's also these rumors that he's going to try to run for the nomination, Republican nomination in 2024, which I mean, if, if Trump runs or if anybody like Trump runs, I mean, Christie doesn't even come close. Um, but it's, it is, I mean, like, again, I think he's right for the wrong reasons. I agree with that. It's one of those things that we just kind of have to keep a keep an eye on. One of the last stories that we want to talk a little bit about, you know, we, we talk a lot about media misinformation here. And while wow, it doesn't get any worse than this, uh, Chris Cuomo, CNN news anchor, is now being accused of coordinating with the former governor, Andrew Cuomo, his brother, in this all of these very shady things that the governor was accused of as far as uh, sexual assault allegations or not even really assault, but just misconduct. And now there's this revelation that not only that Chris Cuomo, you know, you know, obviously had all these interviews with his brother and, that, you know, he was just, you know, kind of trying to report things on Andrew Cuomo that made him look better. But that he actually coordinated with the people in Andrew Cuomo's inner circle about some of the information that they were getting at CNN before it was really hitting them and trying to, like, advise them on how to deal with it. I mean, this is a huge conflict of interest. Yep. Yeah. And I think the. The, there's so many layers to the problems of this story, right? Like you go back to the the heart of the pandemic mm -hmm. and people were just fawning over the Cuomo brothers. Like, Can I say that I am a Cuomo sexual? You know that that's going around, that people are saying they're Cuomo sexuals. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. 
It's not a bad thing. People are in love with you. It started with Trevor Noah, but it, it includes your brother, Chris. I, you're, you're, I enjoy both of you very much. Yes, but you enjoy me more. Didn't you say that earlier? People oh were saying God. 2024 Cuomo. Yeah, <laughs> and everybody should take a step back and say, how did we get ourselves into this situation? And what I'm wondering is what is going on in CNN right now? Because they're the people ultimately responsible for this. We yeah. talked a few weeks ago about the fact that they spread misinformation about Rogan and then mm -hmm. refused to apologize. Still refusing uh, to apologize. Yeah, yeah. and they, ref they, at least until this taping, have mm -hmm. not said that they're going to uh, exact any consequence on mm -hmm. Cuomo, who Chris Cuomo, who himself has allegations of sexual misconduct against mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. And so the, to me, I'm wondering where the accountability is with CNN. And and part of the, the, the frustration here is they have so many on-air personalities who are sanctimoniously attacking media companies like Fox, who yeah. I think deserve to be critiqued. But then they're so flawed internally that it just it, it hurts the overall cause of trying to bring accuracy, fairness, and a less biased news company. Yeah, I mean, CNN was one of the main networks that really gave a lot of credence to all of the sexual assault um, allegations against Trump. And it's like, if you're going to stand for that and say, okay, this is wrong when anybody does it, then you have to, you know, clean your own house. You know, you have to say that for your own people. And like you said, Chris Cuomo has been accused of certain things. He definitely took up the mantle for his brother and tried to cover some things up and tried to help that team cover some things up. And I personally think that Chris Cuomo should either be fired or should resign because there's no journalistic integrity there when you've got a person. I mean, honestly, he should have never been even allowed to report on his brother in such a manner. Right. Well, he they they seemed to, to realize that they that he wasn't going to do too much coverage on his brother's when misconduct. When the actual scandal started But the, if that's true, he should have never been reporting on any of the like so-called positive things about his brother either. He should just never yeah. touch that, right? Like because if it's if it's if it's a conflict of interest to report on things when they go wrong with your brother, mm -hmm. then it's also a conflict of interest to cover positive stories about your brother too. So he should never have been anywhere near his brother. They should never have been playing up this Cuomo brother thing. Yeah. But everything's about ratings and money. And exactly. for, for a while, it was like the hot item on TV. Yeah. And this is where I think the media at writ large, like if you look across Twitter, there are so many embarrassing, uh, like prominent journalists mm -hmm. who are just fawning over these guys and mm -hmm. Cuomo, both like Cuomo as governor and Chris Cuomo. And mm -hmm. like, I think it's, and obviously the right has a field day with this. Mm -hmm. And I think people need to go back and look and say, all right, well, what is your today version of this? Like, cause obviously like everybody's now gonna like try to put their head in the sand and, and mm -hmm. hope that nobody notices what they, what said, they said two yeah. years ago. Yeah. But what's going on today? Like, what are the examples of people that are getting I think disproportionately positive coverage and where people are losing their minds over things happening today. That's the question because this is a culture. This is not about two mm -hmm. brothers. Mm -hmm. This is a culture that exists in the media where people protect their own, whether yeah. they're related or not. Yeah. But to that point, I mean, look, we both have brothers, you know, I can understand Chris try trying to look out for his brother, but that doesn't fly when your brother's the governor of New York. Yeah. Like if my brother showed up with a dead body, I would bury it, but I should go to jail for that if I got caught. You exactly. know what I'm saying? Exactly. The consequences so like, are still yeah. there. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so I would do anything for my brother, but that doesn't mean I'm right. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. I, I would bury the body too. But again, I would have to deal with the consequences of that. And Chris Cuomo should have to deal with the consequences here. Correct. I think that's just what we're basically saying. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more. And now it's time for Chef Corey's Food for Thought. 
Here's your host, Chef Corey Bradford. Welcome to another edition of Chef Corey's Food for Thought, where I cook up my hot takes on panini pressing issues of the day. It's not a real cooking show, by the way, but I do have a new recipe for disaster. A conflict is currently taking place in my home state of Alabama. It involves city government, Alabama state government, and a community that wants to change a street name. More on that later. But first, this conflict between city and state government is a symptom of something happening all over the country that's seldom talked about. It's a little concept called preemption, specifically state preemption, which is when a state government stops a city, county, or town from making its own rules. Usually, when we talk about a tyrannical government in America, it's in reference to federal preemption, when the federal government forces its will upon the states and goes against that age-old concept of state rights. You know, some real Tenth Amendment shit. But the complaints about federal overreach usually come from conservatives. Strangely enough, we don't hear a lot of conservatives complaining about state governments overreaching to preempt local laws. You see, state preemption has recently come from Gaston flag-waving conservative state legislators who want to exert more control over mostly liberal cities. And that's never been more apparent than during the COVID-19 pandemic. Take, for example, the state of Georgia, where Governor Brian Kemp signed an executive order banning cities from enacting mass mandates. He even went as far as suing Atlanta's mayor and the Atlanta City Council when they tried to reinstate more restrictive pandemic-related safeguards. Or look to Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis signed executive orders abolishing all locally passed pandemic-related restrictions. When some school districts defied DeSantis' ban on masks in school, the State Board of Education withheld funding until school boards capitulated. Great formula, Florida. Refuse to give money to schools because they want kids to wear masks so less teachers die from COVID. That's like your parents refusing to feed you dinner because you wanted to wear a helmet while riding your bike. Imagine your dad or mom screaming at you, okay, you want to be safe on that bike? Then it's no corned beef hash for you. Outside pandemic restrictions, state preemption has even been used by Republican state legislators to impose cultural and ideological control over cities. Look at North Carolina, where the progressive city of Charlotte passed an ordinance prohibiting sex discrimination in public restrooms. A month later, North Carolina's legislator passed a bill stripping local authorities of regulating access to public facilities. Because nothing says small government like controlling who gets to use certain bathrooms. Well, the Deep South does have a history of that. And if you enjoy making a living wage, you might want to stay out of Kentucky. In Louisville, back in 2014, the city council passed an ordinance to gradually raise the minimum wage to $9 per hour. Just $9. Two years later, the Kentucky Supreme Court struck that down, ruling that the city didn't have the authority to set a minimum wage above the level set by the state. And that takes us to my sweet home state of Alabama, where the concept of preemption is being used to protect the most sacred of all American values, the names of our roads. Last month in Alabama, the capital city of Montgomery decided to change the name of Jeff Davis Avenue, named after Jefferson Davis, the only president of the failed Confederate States of America, to Fred D. Gray Avenue, after a civil rights attorney who defended Rosa Parks and tried cases regarding segregation that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But the state of Alabama had a problem with this name change because it violated the 2017 Alabama Memorial Preservation Act, which was passed amid fears that cities would move or destroy Confederate monuments. Even though Fred Gray grew up on this street and the city council of the mostly black city of Montgomery voted unanimously to change the street's name, 
Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall sent the city of Montgomery a letter informing them that the city now has to pay a $25,000 fine for changing the name of the street. And if the city doesn't pay the fine, the state is taking them to court. That's Alabama for you. 47th in education, 45th in quality of health care, fifth highest rate of teen pregnancy. But change the name of a street from a Confederate politician to a civil rights pioneer. That's where they draw the line. This is government overreach at its finest. And it doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, conservatives are always complaining that the federal government is getting too big. The mantra of small government has long been touted by the GOP as one of its key principles. The Cato Institute claims that, quote, limited government is one of the greatest accomplishments of humanity and that advocates of limited government are hostile to concentrations of coercive power and to the arbitrary use of power against right. So my question is this. Isn't state preemption the exact opposite of conservative values? And why doesn't that matter more to the right? Decentralized government and local control are both crucial elements of the conservative ideas of liberty and freedom. Tamper with those concepts and you get accused of being tyrannical. So why not acknowledge that overreach and tyranny can come from both the state and federal level? Have you ever had a frustrating experience with a government agency? Maybe you had to spend hours online at the DMV only to be told that you were in the wrong queue. Or maybe you received a parking ticket you didn't deserve and you couldn't take time off from work to fight it. Now just imagine that your entire livelihood was dependent on those interactions. Imagine being dependent on the government for the roof over your head, the food on your plate, and even your legal guardians. And imagine that your attempts at securing those basic aspects of life were the equivalent of a daily trip to the DMV, except with much higher stakes. That's what happened in the case of the Turpins, a family that's been let down by society and our public sector every step of the way. As background, in January 2018, two parents and their 13 children made national headlines. Jordan Turpin, a 17-year-old at the time, escaped her suburban Paris, California home at the crack of dawn desperately seeking help for herself and her siblings who'd been abused by their parents for years. The Turpin siblings, whose ages ranged from 2 to 29, had been malnourished, chained to their beds, and beaten. Body cam footage of the night of the escape shows Jordan, a stranger to the outside world and just blocks away from her home, frantically informing the deputy that she and her siblings had been abused by their parents. My parents are abusing. They abuse us. But the reason I called... And the reason I managed to get out here, this is one of the most scary things I've ever done. Uh -huh. I'm terrified. But I called because my two little sisters, they're chained up right now. Prosecutors describe their case as the worst child abuse case they've ever seen. Parents David and Louise Turpin have since been sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. And when news broke of that case, thousands across the country offered a helping hand. Crowdfunding brought in hundreds of thousands of dollars for the siblings. Doctors and dentists offered pro bono services. But in spite of the countless pledges of support, as well as the host of benefits available to siblings through California's social benefits services, the Turpin children continue to live in squalor, lacking access to basic needs such as food, health care, and education. And in a recent interview with Good Morning America, now 21-year-old Jordan Turpin opened up about her experience following her 2018 escape. I think you guys know that I went into a, kind of another bad situation and I was there for three years after the escape. Mm -hmm. So I barely just got out. I haven't even been like outdoors, like really outdoors 
um, not even a year, it's probably been like, like seven or eight months. Me personally, I thought that I wasn't loved. Jordan, similar to some of her siblings, found herself in another horrendous living situation, one that far too many children throughout the country can relate to. And just to be clear, this is Jordan comparing her most recent housing conditions following her escape to the time when she was living in imprisonment in her California home. Not enough has changed for this young woman. And according to county officials, the Turpin children have been relocated several times since their liberation from their parents, bouncing from one unstable foster home to the next. One of the foster families that housed five of the Turpin children are currently facing criminal charges for alleged mistreatment towards their foster children. Another Turpin child allegedly reported that a foster parent told her, quote, she understands now why her parents chained her up. And the neglect doesn't stop with the foster care system. It turns out that a court-appointed public guardian has blocked much of the $600,000 in private donations that the Turpin siblings have gotten. 29-year-old Joshua Turpin claims that he struggled to access funds for needs as simple as transportation. And when Joshua asked for the public guardian to give them a bicycle, his request was denied. And when he asked for assistance navigating California's public benefit system, he was told to just, quote, Google it from the person responsible for him. So... It's tough enough to navigate a complex and bureaucratic system as an educated adult. Imagine what it must be like for someone who has no experience living in the real world. And it seems that each time the Turpin siblings turn to help, they're met with a Kafkaesque combination of bureaucracy, inefficiency, and flat-out rejection. And sadly, the Turpins are far from the only ones facing the brunt of a negligent social services system. So who can children turn to if the very systems put in place to help them fall short. Who should be held accountable? Now, ChildNet, the California foster care agency that worked to house the Turpins, has a long history of abuse and neglect in their foster homes. In recent years, state investigators found evidence of mistreatment in more than two dozen of their homes, including cases of hitting and choking children, denying medical attention, and forcing kids to sleep on bathroom floors. And in 2019's federal fiscal year, California accounted for over 51,000 children in foster care. And according to California's Department of Health and Human Services, 18% of those children have been maltreated while being fostered. And that's just what's been reported. According to Richard Wexler, the executive director of the National Coalition for Child Protection Reform, the rate of abuse in foster care is much higher than official statistics suggest because these stats come from these agencies reporting on themselves. One of the major fault lines in our politics is a battle between conservatives who want to keep government small and liberals who want an expansive role for the public sector. And sure, there are many other issues that define the two parties, but this is one of their central philosophical differences. I'm in a third camp. I'm in the show me camp meaning I'm willing to consider a robust government, but only if it shows competence and reliability on basic problems that the private sector can't or won't effectively solve. And there's no more foundational role of government than to care for vulnerable kids. And California is a state that should provide the most compelling selling point for liberals. It's a state with a full democratic control and the highest tax rates in the country. You'd expect a Singapore-like level of government effectiveness, but they can't seem to get even the most basic services right. And the foster care system isn't the only basic function of government that California is struggling with. Just look at the homeless response or the prison system. And the same is true of my city, New York City, which has seen a record expansion 
of government under de Blasio without demonstrable uh, improvements in basic services like education, public housing, public transportation, sanitation, or safety. As Mark Andreessenis once implored liberals, he said, prove the superior model. Demonstrate that the public sector can build better hospitals, better schools, better transportation, better cities, better housing. And he challenged liberals to stop judging policies and programs by their intentions, but instead to look at results. But let's look at those intentions. The mission of the California Department of Social Services is to serve, aid, and protect the needy and vulnerable children and adults in ways that strengthen and preserve families, encourage personal responsibility, and foster independence. What are the results? Well, Melissa Donaldson, the director of victim services in Riverside County, said some of the Turpin children told her that they felt betrayed by the county. She explained that basic needs remain elusive and the kids continue to struggle to navigate a complex bureaucratic system they have no experience with, despite a global outpouring of support. She said the county dismissed inquiries from numerous healthcare professionals offering free services for as long as the Turpins needed them. And so if this is the experience of kids in such a high profile case, ask yourself, what must be the experience of those outside of the spotlight? So here's my take. Until California can take care of its kids, it has no business expanding any other program. Show us what you can do with the basics before we trust you to do more. Well, that was some very interesting stuff. We've had a really great episode. We want to thank you all for watching or for listening. If you listen to the podcast, make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and continue to listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.